You're listening to episode 348 of the GNU World Order. My name is Klaatu, and in this episode, we're going to talk about cups. Not coffee cups, but cups, the common Unix printing system. Now, in this episode, I don't, I'm not going to talk about, I'm not going to do a cups tutorial. I'm not going to review everything within the cups package. I want to talk really just about cups. And then in the next episode, 349, we'll actually talk about how to use cups and all the different associated commands bundled along with cups. So cups is an interesting one for me because I, I inadvertently became kind of a cups expert uh, to some to some degree, to some interpretation of the word expert. I was the local expert anyway on cups right when I was getting into Unix, when I was first starting to understand that this uh, closed source platform that I was using at the time wasn't very accessible or inviting to people who were maybe economically not advantaged uh, to have a Mac computer, for instance. And I kind of realized through sort of some hard knocks that I wasn't economically advantaged myself, which at the time was a little bit of a revelation to me. I didn't realize that I wasn't in the financial position to support a Mac habit. I, I had had a Mac habit by just sort of because they were the ones around the house when I was growing up, but I never realized that those objects actually costed money, and once I was out on my own, I had to actually provide that money. So rather than a luxury, it became kind of a tax. So maybe as a side note here, parents, don't raise your kids to be habitual spenders on technology. It's a bad idea. It's not sustainable. Don't teach your children that in order to access technology, they have to spend a lot of money to get into it. And and you, you may not be teaching them that directly, but through your actions you might be. If you continue to buy new new versions of every single device that is released, you're communicating to your young one that they sh- can expect and should expect to do the same thing as they grow up. And you don't know what they're going to do. They might not be on the same career path as you. They might not end up with the same kind of monetary benefits as you have. And so you're kind of setting a bad precedence. So don't do that. Don't spend money on technology. Get technology that is open source and let it drive adoption of technology in your home. Set that as the precedence. Say, we're going to have a computer and it is going to last. And when it starts to fail, we're going to put a lightweight distro on it. And we're going to wring every last drop of life from this device. That's such an important lesson. So anyway, I'm mentioning all of this not to lecture parents about subjects that I actually have no idea about. I've never, I've never been a parent. I, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I feel I'm right anyway. Um, the, the reason I, I mention this is that, I mean, I have been a kid for the record. I've been a child of a parent, of two parents even. So I do feel like I have some authority. Anyway, um, the, the reason I'm mentioning this very specifically is because at a certain point, I got interested in open source. And, and a big part of that was financial interest. I, I, it was something that enabled me to do the cool things that I knew technology should have let me do, except without having to pay to play. Big deal. Now, the other side of that was that as I was learning more and more about computers, I started to understand that I could get paid for my knowledge. And this is something that I think must have stuck because today, still, my career strategy seems to largely be teach myself some stuff and then go find someone to pay me for what I learned. It's a a little bit of an upfront expenditure in time and effort, so not everyone may have the time or or the focus to, to follow that same pattern. 
but it, it has been working fairly well for me so far. And the first time I did that, it was because of printer knowledge, amazingly. Uh, I don't like printers. I hate printers. And the only reason I knew anything about printers was because of cups. So here's a little bit of a history about cups. Cups is the common Unix printing interface, uh, system rather, otherwise it would be cuppy. Cups, common Unix printing system. And it was developed by a guy named Michael Sweet, who later sold it to Apple computers. So when you look at cups today, if you don't look too deeply, it will look like, and Apple will not dissuade you from believing this, it will look like an Apple developed, a developed project. I just want to make it clear that that's historically not the case. For several years, even as I was just beginning with Linux back in 2006 or 8, I knew cups as this little independent project that some random person started and maintained, and, and that was what everyone used for the printing backend. And it's really significant this point, because it was the printing system for Unix. I don't know how to convey the magnitude of, of, of that position. It was huge. Every Unix out there, pretty much, used cups. I, I imagine there were other systems in use somewhere, but just kind of knowing that Unix is a huge, huge footprint of computing power, and they were all using cups in order to communicate with printers, it was a big deal. It's kind of analogous to everyone now leaning so heavily on, for instance, OpenSSL. So at some point, I imagine, and I have no data to verify this whatsoever, but I imagine Apple people were, you know, the board members or, the, or, or whatever, technical officers, were sitting around thinking, this is a really, really important piece of code. This CUPS system is what makes it possible for our computers to talk to printers. And it gives us a lot of backwards compatibility with printers that we might not be able to get if we develop our own system. We need to secure this system. We don't want this to ever go away. And so they purchased it. Now, I guess under some stipulation, and I don't know whose stipulation it was, it got licensed under the Apache, the, the Apache 2.0 license, which is huge. That's its very, very significant that it remained open source. I don't know that it would have had to, for instance. Like, you could, I could, I could have imagined an alternate reality where Apple bought cups and, and made it proprietary to their own, their own system and just dropped support for everything else. For whatever reason, they didn't, and I don't know if that's because the author insisted or whether there was some strategic thing that they just realized, yeah, that it would be better if we left it open. Maybe it was part of the pitch. Hey, if we buy this and leave it open, then people will do what open source people do and continue to contribute, that kind of thing. I don't know. Whatever the, whatever the, the reasoning, we still have an open source Unix printing system today, and you're running it. And it was cups that helped me understand that there was a system running underneath the veneer of what's really obvious on the computer. And this was back in, in Mac days. So to many computer users, and I was one of these computer users, and you might, you may, you probably were one of these computers users once too. You may have forgotten. Um, you may have had a different path and maybe that you were never here that, where, where I'm talking about. But to many computer users, the stuff that they see on screen is tantamount to physical objects. And the idea that there's stuff going on underneath all of that is very, very foreign. And what I mean is that when I used to open up system preferences on 
a Mac. I just thought that was where I thought that that was the preferences like that was the system preferences and when you click on a button that's how you it's it's like a physical switch right you 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 actually physically switch it you you press it like a light switch right you, you switch it and it's on switch it and it's off now from a programming perspective we know that that's not the case what's happening is that that's an input field and upon a click something somewhere is registered Oh, there was an event on that button. So let's change this value over here to 1. I click it again, sends an event to some system running in the background saying, oh, there's another event. Okay, let's change that value to a 0. And now we, we can toggle something on and off. The button itself has no real power, right? It is simply an input field. But a lot of people don't understand that. They think that the button is the setting. So when you add a printer or you send a a document to a printer the most users understand that 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 the configuration is happening in whatever window they interact with it in when i discovered that there was this thing called cups that you could use to configure printers in other ways other than system preferences on a mac my mind was blown it was like someone had peeled away a layer of reality for me and had revealed sort of this this whole new this whole new plane of existence you may remember um in labyrinth the movie labyrinth if you've ever seen that if you haven't you should go see it it's a great movie um but labyrinth it's a jim henson movie uh in labyrinth there's a part where sarah and um hoggle are running through a tunnel and they're being pursued by this horrible sort of metallic grinding machine and and they they run away from it and then the camera cuts to a side view as if though you're sort of looking into the tunnel from a from a side panel from a side uh, tunnel and you see the metal grinding machine move by and it turns out that there's little goblins or something just pedaling there are like little bikes pedaling and moving uh, levers and things like that, actually operating this this metal grinding machine, and it's this wonderful moment of sort of sort of explaining and justifying how this world of crazy, wacky, deadly fantasy functions. And that's what Cups was for me. It was the little goblins running, you know, driving all the machinations of this very sort of deceptively simple interface. So when I discovered Cups, it was quite the revelation, and I started messing around with it because I, I wanted to learn about this, this system that I discovered. And once it got out that I learned how to configure printers in this this new and exciting and secret forbidden knowledge way, people started hiring me to come to their house or their office or their home office and set up their printers because it, 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 it spread like like wildfire among a very small community anyway that hey this guy knows how to set up printers on Macs and that was a big deal at the time if you think we have it bad on Linux for printers there was a time when Macs were equally as difficult to get a printer for it was a it was a very niche market at the time and and people just there were a couple of printers that would actually work on a Mac and people still couldn't figure out how to configure it. And early in the Mac OS 10 days, before, you know, at, right after they had switched to a Unix base, they they essentially had no printer functionality. They they didn't 
support like they couldn't they didn't support printers they had some apple branded printers believe it or not called laser writers i think if i if i remember correctly and and they supported mac i think um and otherwise you had to like network into a printer or something to get stuff off of your computer and even then for a while there there was this really awkward time where you had to i think just reboot you just had to reboot to system 9 and and print from there or something wacky like that it was it was rough, and people were frantic, desperate for someone who could figure out how to set up a, a printer. And I made, uh, I don't want to say a lot of money, because it wasn't a lot of money, but in terms of income, it was, my income was being made by by setting up printers for, for a pretty long time. I was, printers and da- data transference, that, that was my income for a, a, a good chunk of time while I was learning about Unix, because I was the guy who could go in and configure stuff through through systems that no one else knew existed or or knew how to use. And I could I could do all kinds of fancy things. I could set up I could set up those network printers through cups. I could set up local printers through cups. So I have a lot of affinity towards cups just kind of on a, a personal historical level. And, and frankly it's not a bad system. Like I I'm not saying I love cups. I'm not saying I don't like cups. I'm just saying I don't like printers. But if I have to deal with a printer, doing that through cups is probably the way to go. That's that is my preferred method. And I remember, I still remember that someone uh, hired me to come over. I mean early on it was I was being hired to come over to their their home office or their house or whatever and set up their printer just locally because they were a graphic designer or whatever cliche thing that they thought they needed an Apple Mac for they would they would buy that and then they would have a printer and they wouldn't be able to get the thing set up because as I'm telling you early on in in OS X in OS 10 there was no there was no way to configure a printer. There was no way to send data to a printer. Well, I mean, there was a way, but I mean, it wasn't commonly, there, there was commonly no way to do that. So I was hired just for that frantic period between Apple releasing a platform without printer support and figuring out how to do printer support. I was the stopgap for my little local network of, of people who who needed a printer during that time. So I would go over and I would configure printers through cups, whether it was a USB connection or a networked uh, printer. And more often than not, it looked pretty much like magic to most people. And even after that, once sort of printing had become stabilized on, on the platform, I was hired to network a USB printer because people would have these setups, uh, home office setups, where the printer, you know, you don't want it right next to your computer, so you you have it over somewhere else uh, on, a, on a shelf or something or whatever, not not easily not easily attached, and and you think, well, I should be able to print to this thing, and and people wouldn't know how to add the printer over the network, and once again, through cups, you could specify, well, here's where the printer is, here's the protocol to use, here's the driver to use. So when I go to print, I, that's what I want you to use, and it would it would work. And I I, I have a memory, and I, I don't remember the the details, but the one that I remember is someone hired me and said, I, I you you know a lot about this stuff. Why don't you come over and and set up my my printer? I have it plugged into my router, and I want to be able to print to it. And I'd never done anything like that before because it was a to a router through a USB port, so it wasn't a networked printer. 
I mean, it, it was, but, but, you know, previously up to that point, there, a networked printer was a printer with an Ethernet port in it that you could then just point to via a, an IP address. And I don't remember how I did it or how I knew how to do it, but I, I got the guy's printer configured uh, through a USB connection to the router that he had. And there was no functionality within the router on 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 how to do that but somehow i i managed to do it probably mostly by accident but um the minute you 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 go into cups you're just you're operating at a different level than a lot of other users are because through no fault of their own i'm not saying you, you know you're so much better than them or anything like that i'm just saying you accidentally elevate yourself into this different kind of user who understands that there's the front end and that there's a back end and that you know how to talk to the back end and that's a big deal it's a big deal to a lot of people and and i feel like that's kind of in a way the first step to sort of a dangerous, wonderful path towards a lot more serious work. At least it was for me. That that kind of understanding, the separation between the stuff that's presented to a user as almost the API, you could call it, you know? It's like that, that sort of application programming interface, except it's not, it's a UI. But it, it's this sort of front, this sort of, uh, what do they call it? Front, a front, uh, a front. Um, it's this front-facing thing that you hand to someone and, and say, okay, well, that's those are the knobs and the switches that you have to work with. And behind your back, the whole time, you've got this complex control panel. And when they turn one knob, you, you turn five. And, and it's nice, because they only had to turn one knob, and you adjusted all the five ones that, that was, you know, in theory, affecting. But sometimes you got to be the person who, who knows about all those extra switches and knobs. And and that's that that's that sort of back-end space that getting to understand that that exists and then when necessary understanding how to use it it's huge it's huge and i think that's almost a i I do i think it's a great analogy actually for linux itself because there are computers out there and some of them have this nice and easy and sort of simplified front end to them and then there's linux and when i say simplified in this context i don't actually mean improved you know a lot of times simplified is better it is it's it's exactly what we want but in this context it's it's more like um it's more like obs- obfuscated i guess is a, a better term than simplified it's obfuscated and sometimes admittedly some people want the obfuscation um but if you don't want that then obviously linux will let you peel all that away and i guess the the main objection as always isn't the obfuscation of of control it's the inability to wipe that obfuscation away to clarify it and to get back to what's actually going on and that's that's linux too right i mean you've got you've got perfectly acceptable desktop environments like gnome which is very charming very beautiful little desktop i use it at work to to be a team player. There's a bunch of people at work who work very, very hard on the GNOME desktop, so it's it's fun to kind of dip into that world sometimes. And then at home, I mean, work and home are the same for me all the time now, but um, especially now. Uh, but at home, I go back to the KDE desktop, and it's, the, I mean, the Plasma desktop by KDE. It's wonderful. It's exactly what I want. I think that's as much reminiscing about cups that I can possibly muster. So we should go get a cup of coffee now, and then we'll come back, and we'll, we'll not talk about cups. Instead, we're going to talk about bug reporting. Okay, coffee break. <laughs> Thank you.
attention recently, and it's it's about bug reporting. And and I mean, bug reporting itself is a fascinating topic, and and I probably should talk about it in greater depth at some point because I've I've come to realize that not everyone really truly understands how bug reporting works or why it exists and so on. And, and I've had I I had a uniquely in depth introduction to bug reporting when I first started my serious computer computer career. And I feel like I've learned a lot from it, and I should probably, yeah, I should do a segment on that. But anyway, now, right now, this this segment, actually, I'm going to jot down, I'm going to jot down that I should do a um, sort of a, a philosophy and culture of bug reporting there. Now I've got it noted on this scrap of paper. I don't see how I could possibly ever lose track of that idea now. Okay, so I want to talk about bug reporting, though, today, this this uh, particular segment, I want it to be about bug reporting and its unintended effects on user expectation. And and this is a very specific glance at this, um, but it, because it's something that happened fairly recently uh, in a in a project that I'm involved with, so th- there's there's a bug reporting mechanism, right? That's part of open source software development is bug reporting, meaning if you find a mistake with with an application, or something that you believe might be a mistake with an application, or or an application simply is not working for you as you expect it to, then you are invited to file a bug report. Now, many popular platforms nowadays seem to um, sort of not use the, the phrase bug report. They call it an issue, which I think, uh, terminology-wise, I think that's not a bad replacement. I think bug report may or may not have a specific kind of connotation to it, because what is a bug? Well, people kind of know what a bug is, but do they know when they see a bug? And I think there's a lot of hesitation in a lot of people, and this is getting a little bit into that other topic of philosophy and culture, but I think that there's a little bit of an, some trepidation on the parts of many people to say, well, that I don't know if that's a bug or not. You know, like something happens and they think, oh, it might not be a bug. Well, okay, maybe it's a bug, maybe it's not a bug in the code, but the experience has clearly had a bug in it, and so you should report that bug. Uh, it might not be a bug, really, though. It could just be. It could be something, you know. So there's like this sort of perceived like I'm not qualified to determine whether this is a bug or not. Whereas the word issue, well, everyone can determine whether something's an issue or not. Was that an issue for you? Well, yes, it was. That was a real issue for me. Was is is this an issue? Yes, this is an issue for us while we are trying to use this application. This is an issue we cannot look past. That sort of thing. Everyone knows what an issue is. It just means you have a problem with it. It might not be a valid problem. It might be that the button is is purple instead of green, and you feel like it would make more sense for it to be green. Is that a bug? Well, actually, yes, it is. If you if you think that it should be one way and it's not, then then that's a bug. Is it an issue? Well, absolutely easy call. It's an issue. That that's an issue for me. Is it a valid issue? Well, it's as valid as it is for you. Whether the programmer is going to agree with you and change it for you is a completely different story. And that that's where issue and bug essentially are the same thing, right? It's like someone has reported a thing, and the 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 privilege of determining whether that's a thing that needs to be changed or not is is exclusively with the people who control that software project. And of course, the alternative is to either accept that they've decided it's not an issue or a bug, or you could fork the project and and create uh, 
uh, an alternate version of it for yourself. And that's all a bug or an issue is, and there are it's a rich tradition in open source software. Now it's a rich tradition in all software actually, but the difference with open source software is that that mechanism is public. It's available to anyone using the software. Now this is an interesting thing that I want to talk about because when you might think, okay, well, open source that it makes it it makes it available to everyone because everyone can use the software. So now you've got that many more people kind of monitoring the software and how it works and 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 so on. But that assumption is a little bit incorrect because I mean, if that was the way that bug reporting access worked, then you'd expect that if you purchased a program that was not open source, but you have a valid license for that program, then you would kind of expect in a way to suddenly be purchasing insight and access to their bug reporting mechanism. And and I think that would be a reasonable expectation. But luckily for companies that, that deal in non-open source software, um, that's not that was never an expectation or a tradition that really was established. It was a little bit, because back in the back in the very old days, you could actually call up a company, a software manufacturer, and 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 ask a question. Like you could get phone support for software, and you would talk sometimes to someone who's programming the application. Like it, it seems crazy today, and it, it almost seems like I'm making it up, probably to some people. But but that's an actual thing. Like that actually happened. Um, it it's it was very commonplace. You would you would buy some software off the shelf, and you would get the contact information for the people who made that software. And it wouldn't it w- it wouldn't just be a mailing address or a, much less a website because websites didn't exist uh, as such back then but you, you would get the phone number and you could call up and talk to someone at the company and say hey when i start the software uh you know it, I, I see the 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 first screen and and then it closes suddenly and i can't i can't get it to stay open what 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 do i need to do it was something that would actually happen so there was that but as as the industry progressed and that sort of faded away, people just kind of forgot about the idea eventually of any kind of sense of support for, for software. And I think part of that was actually helped along sadly by the internet because uh, pe- uh, places were, were able to sort of say, oh, well, if you want help, just go to our website. And that became less and less um, interactive and, and helpful as the years went on. And it just kind of slowly brought everything down to a sort of a tepid, non-committal temperature. And that's where we are today, right? I mean, well, actually, we're not even there today, I don't think. I feel like today, there's just no expectation of support or help at all, really. Um, and any kind of expectation of, of support has been sort of strangely offloaded onto community forums. And, of course, um, the the idea of community is so appealing to so many people that a lot of times that's seen as a real benefit, a, a real gift to the to the user that the company has provided such a rich and uh, vibrant and warm and welcoming and all of these other really exciting and kind of evocative adjectives, this, this place where a community can gather. So you have all these people gathering around this software that they don't in any sense of the word own, um, they've paid for a licensing fee. They paid a licensing fee for the privilege to use the software, but they don't own the software. They have no communication with the people who are creating the software. And in fact, eight times out of 10, they're gathering in a place where there's no interaction, even, even 
implied interaction from the creators of the software in order to get support from one another. And and I think that that's just astonishing to me uh, that someone could pay $100, $600, $1,200 sometimes for software and just and be okay with the idea that the only support line available is name of your application support forum.com you know like that that's it that that's that's your that's your support it's just a bunch of other people stumbling around the software the same as you with with the vague hope that someone has enough experience with it and has run into the same kind of use case or or error that you have and can help you solve it, it it's astonishing that that's that that's the way it goes, but that is the way it goes, and I think we all are kind of aware of that. So that is the state of non-open software. And the state of open software, interestingly, is is wildly different. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand that. The state of open source software, of course, is that you can freely file bugs or issues for some kind of support directly with the people maintaining the software that you're using. Now, that alone is not understood by a lot of people. A lot of people don't understand that there's that ability. So that's important to understand. That's important to acknowledge. A lot of people don't even understand that they have the ability to do that. Like, that's just, it's not that they're thinking, oh, I wish I could do that. It's just that they don't even know that that's a question to ask. Like, how can I file a support ticket with these people? Well, you, that, that's not even, you, you don't file support tickets. They, those, those don't exist except maybe at work. And so you don't think to do that in the real world with software or anything else. Now, some people do kind of discover that that's a thing in open source software. That's cool. That's neat. Uh, and then there's there's this other hurdle of kind of okay well so I can su- I can file the support thing so how come when I did file support the person ignored me and didn't take my suggestion well actually those are two two separate things um, we'll assume in this perfect world that no one's ignoring anybody so we'll we'll drop that for a moment uh, and we'll say well a lot of people file an issue and then are are irritated that 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 issue wasn't a work order. It was just an issue. And that's a difficult thing to understand because, unfortunately, I think a lot of us in open source are very excited about filing issues and bug reporting. And so we we tout that as an advantage of the platform. And then when people try it, uh, nothing happens. The, 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 or rather, their desired outcome is not achieved. And that's too bad because sometimes, um, I mean, sometimes it's okay. It's uh, Sometimes that's life, right? I mean, it's just a difference in opinion. Uh, other times, um, the the developer is asking for too much information that, that's over the head of the user, or sometimes uh, it's just too hard for the developer to do. And it would be nice, but yeah, it can't, can't be done. We need more people to help um, counter this problem or whatever. So sometimes it's not the magic bullet that I think sometimes it, it it's presented as being. But I feel like a lot of that is just kind of standard sort of learning the the territory just learning how to interact with others in a, in a in a, what might be a strange new world for people but there's this other case that happens sometimes but right there between that sort of inter that that sort of yeah i guess interstitial point between between the bug reporting of open source and the absence of support for non-open source. And what this is, is the non-open world kind of, I think probably unintentionally, offloading problems onto open source. 
Here's what I mean by that. If you have an open source project and it's working quite well on your open platform and then someone files an issue because they have been using your open source software on a closed platform or with a closed in tandem with a closed application for instance they need to import a certain file type from your thing to the other thing or, or vice versa who knows then they may file a bug report with you because you are open source and you have the you you offer the ability to file an issue if that issue ends up being something with the non-open component of this process then your recourse very frequently as the maintainer of of software is well if your non-open component would fix this bug in their software then i could fix the thing in my then i could accommodate in mine to do what you want it to do so in other words you you as the developer are being blocked by some something lacking in the non-open uh, component that this person's trying to deal with it could be anything like i say it could be a file format you know file an issue with an open source uh, software thing why don't you support the um dot psd file format or the dot doc file well i guess dot doc is probably well well engine reverse engineered at this point but you know whatever dot dot um dot whatever let's go go with dot psd i guess why why don't you support these 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 parts of the psd file format in your open source project well the, the answer is well i can't because psd itself is not open and so i can't get to all the parts that i need to get to in order for it to work the same way in my application uh and i'm just i'm pulling PSD out of the thin air as an example. I could be I haven't looked into the state of PSD in ages, so you'd have to kind of don't don't take this as a literal example. I'm just using letters to represent non-open software. Uh so or maybe maybe it, the 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 problem is why on in the software in the setup steps there's a bunch of more setup that I have to do on the closed source platform because um it's not working the way that you think it should work. Well okay well if your platform would fix their uh, GUI tool that uh, unzips an archive um whatever then then the steps would be the same the alternative is that you can uh maybe install these commands on your system and run them instead but then now we're getting into well in order to use my software you also have to install a bunch of stuff on your on your computer and basically reinvent your environment in order to run this platform and so on so it gets messy and the 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 end result is that your you know the the, the closed source software has introduced an issue into your into the sort of the workflow into the 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 um the use scenario the scenario of around your your software and so it seems it feels from any outside observer that you're just passing the buck right back to them you're saying yeah yeah i i know that that's not as graceful or as effective or as as polished as it should be but if you could just talk to your your closed source vendor then that would be um that that would enable me to continue or to resolve this issue and functionally what that seems like is that you are just saying it not my fault you know it's just it's sort of just a it, it's it's a blocker it's just a you're shutting the issue down you're saying yeah not really my problem but what you're really actually saying but, well or rather because what you're actually saying is go file a bug report or an issue with your vendor with with your non-open vendor but we all know secretly sort of 
in the background, we all actually know, well, there's no way to do that. Like, I can, I can file issues with my non-open vendor every day until Christmas, and then, and they'll never respond to me, and they'll probably never fix the issue, and I'll never know that they're, they're, whether or not they've even heard the issue. And that's an interesting quandary. Like, how do you get around that? How do you get around, I want to make open source stuff, but if you continue to try to use the open source stuff on your non-open platform, or with these non-open components, then I can basically guarantee that it's not going to work the way that I say it should work. There's there's no way around that. And bizarrely, because open source has the open door policy of, yes, bring us all of your issues, it feels like open source is is making up excuses for not resolving an issue, when in reality, they are unable to repair the issue because the closed platform simply has not has no open door policy, is not going to fix the tools that, that need to be fixed, or open the specs that need to be open, or whatever the case might be. And you know, the, the thing is, I think that the answer to all of this is actually blatantly, embarrassingly clear to probably, certainly you, dear listener, and, and probably lots of other people if they really think about it. And, and the answer is don't don't use a closed component. Don't use that non-open component, like the one that, that is stopping you from, from utilizing the tools and the workflows that you want to use. Cut that out, and then it'll all work. But people don't choose to do that, right? They, 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 they willfully do not do that, and then they, they tend to, maybe I shouldn't say tend to, but it is not unheard of for people to hear that to hear that response and to think well you're just you're just being you're just trying to promote your own your own agenda or you're just hating on this on on windows or or mac or whatever because because you want me to have to use linux but you know it's not really about that is it i mean sure you could use linux you could use bsd whatever but ultimately what what the what the issue is here that is is that one is responsive to your issues and one is completely shut off from your issues and the issues of other developers i think for all of the praise and and amazement that we that we give microsoft lately for being so friendly to open source I think that, and and by the letter, you know that that is great, open source, good good thing, um, and and yet the the process hasn't really changed all that much, has it? I mean, it's it's not like you have a an issue reporter now for 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 Windows. I mean, it's not like you can actually talk to to Windows, and certainly the FSF has famously now invited Microsoft to open source previous versions of Windows, for instance, Windows 7 most recently, uh, and and there's not really been any kind of movement towards that whatsoever from from Microsoft. So you've you and certainly Apple has been touting the the open source elements of their OS for well for, for as long as I can remember now. Uh, that they've had their open source.apple.com stuff and and it's it's mostly stuff that doesn't even originate with Apple. You know, it's it's mostly just the the open source that they happen to use and they copy the the code to their site as a downloadable tarball and. It's like, look at how much open source we have offered the community. Yes, well, 90% of this is available on the internet and was already available on the internet well before you were using it in your OS. So for all the the embracing of open source, the, the, the embracing of the idea of actually 
communicating with your users and actually listening to your users and responding to user requests. Not quite there. And I think that's a, a very, very important thing to be aware of. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's a dangerous path to go down. I wouldn't want open source to be defined by whether or not you have an open bug report mechanism. That would not be a useful definition, I don't think, because it, it, it ignores ultimately the fact that, that, that there's always a, an open bug reporting system in open source, and that is forking a project and fixing the problems yourself, which of course, again, sounds trite, because not everyone can literally do that, but that option is a necessary sort of... It's, it's got to be there, right? It's, gotta, it's a little tripwire that needs to be there, or a safety catch, you know, that needs to be there in order to, to sort of preserve the, 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 the seriousness of, of open source. Like, that open source is open, meaning that if you or enough people or if someone with enough money wants to sponsor it, whatever the, whatever the scenario might be, if you want something to change, ultimately you can always make it change. And that is super, super important. And it's a lot more important than sort of saying, oh, well, if you want to be considered, you want this stamp of, of this degree of open sourcedness, you have to have a bug tracker and you have to have responded to a certain number of bugs or whatever weird scenario we could come up with. Wouldn't want that. However, I think it's important to acknowledge that when it is open source, there are bug reports, there are issue trackers, and people can file those issues, people can be aware of the issues, and people can work towards the solution. If it's not open source, even if you've got all that, people can't work towards the solution because they don't have the source. That's a problem. But if the problem with an open source project is because of a blocker on a non-open source project, or product more likely, it's important to realize that when you're being referred back to those non-open vendors, there's no recourse there. That's a that's a brick wall. You cannot just pass through that, file an issue, wait for the response, and then work with the open ones to, to piggyback off of that. It's not going to happen. You're being blocked by your non-open vendor. It's important to understand that. It's important to emphasize that. And it's important to sort of spread that knowledge around as people start to use more and more open source. Open source can only be as powerful for you as the weakest non-open product in your workflow. That's all I have to say about that. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you next time. listening to the GNU World Order AugCast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as AugCast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.
He wants you to have slack. 